0: question for you young lady every one of the kids in this house is happy except for you
1: why is that what's your problem stop it all i can say is that my life is very complicated
2: i'm sorry i didn't get half of what you said this is a royal canadian movie podcast independent investigation hey there and welcome to the rcmp that's the royal canadian movie podcast I'm your host today, Becky Shrimpton, and this week, I'm sitting down with actor Richard Clarkin and filmmaker Arturo Perez-Torres to talk about their film, The Drawer Boy, which you can catch right now, streaming on Highball.tv. The Drawer Boy is nominated for two Canadian Screen Awards right now, one for Best Adapted Screenplay for Arturo and one for Best Supporting Actor for Richard. If that isn't enough to sell you on why you should check this out, The movie is also based on the Governor General literary award-winning play of the same name by Michael Healy. The movie takes place in 1972 in rural Ontario. There are two farmers, Angus and Morgan, and they've been living alone on their farm after an injury in World War II seriously affected Angus's memory. One day, Miles, a young actor from Toronto, shows up asking to study their day-to-day lives and work on the farm in exchange for room and board as he's preparing for a play about the lives of farmers with his theater troupe. The more time he spends with them and learns their story, the more Angus's memory opens up, and the movie ends with a revelation that will change everything for everyone involved. In this interview, we're going to make reference to The Farm Project, which was a theatrical production back in the early 70s, which this fictional story draws from. That's also got a really interesting history and is certainly worth finding out more about in your spare time. Finally, I would like to apologize for the audio quality this episode. I tried out a new system to record over the phone, but unfortunately, the results are less than ideal. Regardless, it is an insightful chat. So here's my interview with Arturo Perez-Torres and Richard Clarkin.
1: So Arturo, you, you do a lot of documentary about social justice. How did you get involved with Drawer Boy, and uh, how did that background sort of tie into this?
2: It's
0: been 15 years that I've made documentaries, and, uh, but... I guess ever since I went to film school in my early 20s, I wanted to make fiction narrative films. And I went into documentary because it's kind of like fell on my, on, on my lap, I guess, the topics and I felt really passionate and then I started making documentaries. But making narrative film has always been in the back of my head. And then uh, 10 years, 15 years went through and um, with my partner who is an actor in theater mostly and director. One time we talked about we should make a film together. You know, you have um, the theater experience, you have the acting experience. I come from the documentary world, which is another set of experience that can be used. We came up with the idea to make a film from a play. And that's kind of like where the moment where the idea was born and um, what play and then we went we knew that it had to be a Canadian play and uh, we started reading some Canadian plays that Aviva liked and then we weren't convinced so then we went and uh, consulted with social media and posted a question that was which is your Canadian favorite play and then there was 10, 20, 30 people putting the Canadian favorite Canadian play and then one the one one of the two or three with the highest score was The Dora Boy. So we read The Door Boy among other two or three plays. And personally, I loved The Draw Boy. And uh, Aviva was not that, she was kind of like borderline, but then we talked and then we ended up um, both feeling really passionate about The Door Boy.
1: Now, um, we were just talking to Arturo about uh, how the Drawer Boy film sort of came to be, and uh, with yourself, you obviously have a long history, especially with uh, Toronto filmmaking. I mean, you originated one of the parts in Saltwater Moon, which is also classic Canadian Um, Mm theatre. When this came to you, were were there any hesitations you had about taking it, or were you right away like, yeah, I want this?
3: Zero hesitations. (laughs) No, absolutely. (laughs) I jumped in uh, both feet. I was Absolutely thrilled uh, because I love this the play so much, and the idea of doing a film version of it, which was bound to be a different animal altogether. And these characters, to my mind, clearly translated well into a medium of film. So uh, I couldn't have been happier. I it was one of those there are a few. A few moments in an actor's life where you get a piece of good news or a part and you're just kind of walking on air and this was one of them. So very grateful to uh, have this opportunity.
1: And I have to ask you, was there any concerns uh, or when you put a a stage play on film, often whoever's doing that part, that becomes like the definitive version. I think of like Augusta Sage County, right? You can't think of it without thinking of that multitude of brilliant actors. Did you feel like you were creating the definitive version of this character? No,
3: not at all. I, uh, it didn't occur to me. Uh, I saw the uh, original uh, production of the play and these actors were terrific and they did beautiful jobs and they will be forever associated with the stage version of the play. But I, I kind of felt that I was starting fresh and new and it's kind of the way a lot of new acting work presents itself to me. I, I sort of wipe away history in many ways and just start clean and fresh and had absolutely no idea how things would go. and. You know, it was just a clean slate for me.
1: So Arturo, let me throw this back to you then. Um, if you're creating something, so you talked about having found this play that you knew you wanted to create a film from a play. What were the challenges in adapting this for the, the film? And what sort of collaboration did you have with the actors once you decided this is what you wanted to do?
0: Well, when I read the play, uh, I fell in love with it because there are topics about documentary filmmaking. If you know the play, the the character Miles that arrives at the at the farm, He's basically a documentary, documentarian, basically picking up real stories to then, you know, make something with them, just like documentary people do. So in that sense, I I fell in love with the story. Now, what um, Richard was talking about is quite interesting because about him being the definite um, Morgan. um, When we made the casting, uh, a lot of people played on the, comedic part of the play, which is really funny. When you read it, it's hilarious. And I think many times a lot of actors play on that and then it becomes what is most of the times on stage, uh, more of a comedy than a drama. Uh, When I read it, I read it in a different way. I read, I didn't wanna like over accentuate the, the comedic parts of it, but made it drier. And uh, in a way more realistic, more like a documentary. So in that sense, that's when I took what I took from the play into the adaptation to the film, kind of like downplaying the comedic part and bringing up the realistic and dramatic parts. And Richard nailed it in the, in the casting. He was uh, basically my idea of what, what Morgan was from you know, the 20 or so people. That we cast it
1: there's such a, obviously a different pace that's involved when you're doing a play versus doing a film. People are going into a film are less likely to sit through a two and a half hour three hour show. Were you aware of the pacing of the play and did that translate into the editing
0: yeah the the actual film is a bit different than the than the play I mean for instance um the play takes only takes place only at the farm and there are only three characters that's it. It's a uh, three-person play. In the the film, we were very aware of that, and we were very aware of of, uh, not making it claustrophobic. When I did my research and watched a bunch of films based on plays, every single one, I felt that feeling of like, oh, my God, when am I going to see the sun or the light or the sky? You know, everything takes place indoors, and it's a bit claustrophobic. So we added... um, Scenes outside. We brought in characters that are mentioned in the play but are not there. When in the play they talked about a rehearsal, we actually brought the rehearsal in and uh, created a scene about it, which in the place just mentioned that he, uh, one of the characters, Miles, just came back from rehearsal and talks about it. So we recreated that memory or that experience that Miles had. Um, and then in a more uh, uh, surreal way, if you want to call it, when um, Angus, the character that has a faulty memory, has visions—or not uh, visions, sorry—when he has memories of, of his brides, of the brides that the women that they both loved, we actually brought them in reality, so they actually show in the film. Um, yeah, so a, a few differences just to make them both more appeal more appealing uh, visually, and also to bring more layers uh, to the to the world in the film. So it's not just the farm. There's other things happening in other parts geographically, I guess.
1: Now, of course, you guys have two different uh, kinds of people here. It's a meeting of worlds. You have your uh, actor coming from the big city. He has ideas of what farming is and is coming to learn. I put that in quotes. Um, and then you have your farmers who are salt of the earth. Uh, they've been through World War II. Um, they obviously have very rich histories. Um, how do you find audiences have been sort of reacting to each of these characters and which who do they emphasize with more, or is it a balance? <laughs>
0: um, well, in my experience, I don't know if Richard can say his experience, but um, the film has done specifically well in rural America in the U.S., but like in the small towns. So I think the audience loves the, the, you know, the countryside of the movie and the farmers and the funny uh, relation between the city and the, and the country. Um, they love it. Like all out of all the festivals that we went, the ones that were in Indiana or small town in Mississippi, that's where it did really well and won awards and what have you. So yeah, it's funny. What do you
3: think, yeah. uh,
1: Richard? What's been your experience?
0: Well,
3: I've i had a lot less experience uh, watching the film at festivals with with cross section of audiences uh, than Arturo and. And Viva, you know, I've I've only watched it in the company of of audiences uh, twice, maybe. So uh, it's it's hard for me to say. Uh, People kind of respond to the connection between the three actors in the movie. I mean, the relationships are are strong. They're established clearly uh, early on. And um, I, I don't, I'm not sure an audience sort of takes sides. There's just too much humanity coursing through the actors, the parts and characters. That it, it's kind of like a mobile, fluid dance that you're watching.
0: I also think that the this movie, the story has kind of like a little bit for every type of audience. Because if you really look at the film, and especially when you look at it like I have 20 or 30 or 50 times, the writing is beautiful and it has so many layers. Like you can view it as a love story for those people that love just the love story. You can view it as a loyal story of, of a loyalty and friendship. Um, you can view it as a comedy. You can view it as a drama. Then there has another layer of this Almost a philosophical thing of, about reality and how memories affect how we view reality and we, how we construct reality through memories. You know, so it has a little bit for everyone. So in that sense, you know, it's it can do well in, in the country with um, people that. Maybe like just comedy. Uh, And not not to say that there are no philosophers in the country, I'm sure. I think there are philosophers in a very different way. In a different way. I mean, just going through the stereotypes, I think he has something for everybody. Yeah. Mm.
1: I, as I watched this, I was like, this is not the most flattering look at a lot of actors. Um, There's uh, a lot of self-importance, a lot of misunderstanding, um, a lot of naivete. uh, And there's a whole concept of people who pretend versus people who do and what value actors and performers and artists of any type actually are bringing to the world. Did you have any, any idea around that or do you have any thoughts around that?
3: In terms, uh, are you f- referring to the way that Miles sort of is is using um, Angus and Morgan as as material to to build a play around? Yeah, like
1: he there's almost an infantilization he has initially of them. Like he's like, oh, you know, these are good salt of the earth sort of folks. Uh, it's playing on the old trope of that city people don't yeah. really understand that. right?
3: Yeah. I I guess um, my response to it is he is he's naive he's an innocent he's young and he brings the sort of uh, wide-eyed uh, hopefulness of a young actor uh, working with <laughs> the, you know other young people and a bit of a mentor guru sent him on a mission to do this and. Um, you know, uh, I I think it's an interesting project for an actor to work on, and I would have thought that back in the day when Paul Thompson and the actors who were part of this company that actually did this, that it would have been a worthy, uh, credible um, experiment in making theater, as long as you were respecting uh, your subjects and from what i understand uh the locals in in the farming community in the early 70s uh largely were i think open and and enjoyed being the subject of of a play and i think they supported the work as best they could um in the context of our movie you know miles takes on the voice and the mannerism of morgan in from Morgan's point of view, it's an invasion because it, it Miles is telling a retelling, a story that is a very private ritual story between Angus and Morgan. And so, for for Morgan, it's it's a violation.
1: So then, let me ask because one of the questions that I have about uh, about this film is it's really asking the question: Who do stories belong to? Who's allowed to tell them? In what venue should they be told? What's the power of them? Um, do you guys have any personal thoughts on that? And especially about what the message of the film is?
0: Uh, <laughs> that's a great question uh, and hard to answer. For me, I, I mean, I I deal with that as a documentary filmmaker um, um, when you tell a story by the fact that you are just recording it in film, you're changing it. So I learned that um, through many years, it took me many years to learn that what you're actually recording, it might seem like you're recording reality, but you're not, you're changing it, you're interpreting, even though on your video camera, it looks like a replica of what it is. So in that sense, from that angle, without getting into um, appropriation or anything like that, just by the fact of repeating a story, you are changing it and therefore, it's becoming your interpretation and yours in a way. You're becoming because it's, it's a retelling that you are creating which brings a lot of problems of what we're dealing now with, uh, which is a, for me is a different topic, appropriation, right? And are we allowed to tell the stories of others? But in The Drawer Boy, just him, by telling the story, and I think that's an interesting point in the play, he changes it, he changes it, and that's why Angus is, is, uh, realizes and opens his memory again, because it's just another angle, just by seeing another person telling the same exact story in our, uh, it seems to be the same exact story, but it's not because it's being told by somebody else. So that just changes everything. And he becomes the owner of that story. Now, when you, if we go into appropriation, are we okay? Are we allowed to tell other stories? It opens a can of worms, which I think, uh, we're not, I mean, we're not uh, unless, uh, we have the full participation and and, uh, awareness of the people that are being uh, interpreted or recorded in the documentary or the stories we're telling.
3: I I think it's a really, it's obviously a very touchy subject uh, now, uh, the question of appropriation and what are the borders, what are the boundaries of that. I find it I find it very complex. Um, does it mean, for example, that musicians who are white uh, shouldn't be playing jazz music, which which was a, a genre largely created in in its early days uh, a black dominated genre of music? Um, does it mean that a black writer um, cannot write about something taking place in Asia or in Ireland? Uh, does it mean that a white writer can't write about something taking place in Africa? It's, it's very complex, and, uh, you know, we have a whole body of work of, of what in this current climate would be labeled as appropriation that if you sort of sift through it is is just kind of mind-boggling. So I can't think in the context of The Drawer Boy. The borrowing of, of story that exists in The Drawer Boy is on a level of um, innocence and respect in a way from Miles' point of view. And, and, and so I, I don't see it as anything Egregious or wrong? That's a very good question.
1: Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, the ending so fascinating to me. Even when I saw the play, I was thinking about: Did Miles do the right thing by opening this up and changing their relationship?
0: I don't think Miles. Uh, the, the question between being a good thing or a bad thing ever crossed his mind. I mean, he wasn't there with with a with a moral or ethical uh, task. You know, he was just um, doing his job as an actor, collecting stories beyond good and evil, if you want, you know. The only choice he takes at the end, which is interesting, is that he decides not to um, to use the story anymore. That's the only choice. But when he first arrives, his choice, if you want to call it, is, is just to work and, and ask permission if, we, if, we, if I can collect your stories and then uh, make a play about it. And they say yes, and then that's it. He doesn't have an agenda. So whether he did the right thing or not, we qualify his last action when he's like, you know what, here is the book where I've taken all my notes. I don't, it's your story. I don't want to touch it anymore. Um, I think it was the right thing. I think it was the right thing because um, they, he knew the damage that it did and the goodness that it did. and uh, And that's when, it could be interpreted a bit about uh, appropriation, right? It was not for him to tell it at the end, I suppose. I mean, it's open for debate, but uh, I I like that ending when he gives it back and he's like, you know, it's here it is, thanks, but I don't want the story. It's yours.
3: I think it's a it's I think it's a beautiful um, gesture on Miles' part,
0: mm-hmm.
3: obviously his. Lack of agenda and his the, the sort of choices he makes, which seem very innocent, in fact, become yeah. um, the mitigating incident in the in the story that breaks things open. And that's that's just really good <laughs> playwriting <laughs> and and um, storytelling by Michael Healy uh, that that forces the issue and forces the action. I, I, I just think it's it's really well structured and then. And then there's a beautiful, beautiful grace note by Miles at the end um, because clearly there is the relationship and the farm has changed. And mm. the, the dynamic between Morgan and, and Angus, we don't know where it's going to go, but, but something has shifted and Miles leaves it with that. Um,
1: I have uh, just two more quick questions for you guys that I ask all my guests. Uh, the first one is, do you guys have a favorite Canadian film that you'd like to recommend to our listeners?
3: I do. Uh, go ahead, Richard. Uh, there's a lot of great Canadian films. There's some fantastic Quebec films, Les Bonnes de Dames and Mon Oncle Antoine. Um, they're older films, but a more more recent film is an English Canadian film shot in Thunder Bay called Sleeping Giant.
0: And, oh, I saw that.
3: Yeah. Did you like it, Arturo?
0: I love that. It's yeah. so
3: good. Uh, I wish it had wider recognition, but it's it's about, I think it's about four or five years old, and it got the attention of a lot of people. Unfortunately, it didn't have the promotion that it deserved, but it is an excellent, excellent film. Not just Canadian film, but it holds up against many films I've seen in the last few years, Sleeping Giant.
0: We we spoke to the DP that shot that movie, The Sleeping Giant, to shoot the, the drawer boy he was. And then it didn't work out, but he is an amazing DP too, the director of photography. Mm-hmm. He's great. Mm. I, I was thinking, and uh, the only thing I could think is b- before I even moved to Canada over 15 years ago, I grew up... Um, watching Adam McGoyan's movies and he's uh, like to me represented beautiful Canadian filmmaking so I would say any of his movies would be a, a safe bet That is just world-class film making of new movies I guess uh, I would go with Richard's Choice the Sleeping Giant it was amazing at the end uh, well I won't spoil for anybody but I uh, at the end, is one of those movies that you're just, like, short of breath of what just happened. It's mm-hmm. so moving. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful.
1: And my second question for you guys is, what do you think Canada needs more of to support its artists?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a tough, tough question.
3: <laughs> <clears throat> I think uh, the uh, easy answer would be money. But um, I think it's cliche, and we hear it all the time. In Quebec, they don't look over their shoulder. A very healthy uh, film and TV industry and a very healthy star system. And they long ago learned that writing their own stories and believing in them for TV and film and uh, developing their own musicians and world class dance companies, uh, that telling their own stories is enough. And look at their industry. I think in English Canada, We are heavily influenced by um, American content, and uh, there is a shocking kind of void in our culture about believing in our stories and that our stories are well worth telling and everything we need from the well exists here. I think what Canada... Canada could use more of in supporting its artists. It's just a belief in its artists and and its storytellers. And um, people with some money could take some more risks on Canadian storytellers.
1: Yeah. How about for you, Arturo?
0: I I would have to agree with everything that Richard said. Um, uh, I don't think it's money because compared to other countries, uh, we're very privileged. And then you compare it to countries that have less um, less money and they end up making also beautiful films or as many films. So it's not money. I would say it's identity, just what Richard say. I, I don't mean to just piggyback on his answer, but it's true. When you look at, um, at French uh, Canadian movies in general, and I'm not just generalizing, but I'm going to... <laughs> Mm-hmm. The content and the movies are better. I have to say it. Just looking at the at the uh, Canadian Screen Awards, uh, I think four out of the five finalists are French Canadian movies, or five actually. I, I don't All even five.
1: Know. All five are French. Yeah.
0: All five are French. Yeah, it's
1: a clean sweep this year. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly, and uh, and it's true. I mean, they are. Better and part of it has to be has to do with uh, that their identity is more cemented. It's, it's 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 older in a way. It's more preserved. It's more um, less influenced, I guess. You know, I mean, it's for obvious reasons. But I think Canada has so much to offer. Again, as Richard said, uh, we just assume that we have to do exactly what's be done in the south and. Uh, and once we stop that, and there are some people who don't do that, once they are like, no, I'm just going to do what I feel and what it's true to myself, where I'm come from, then we have beautiful English Canadian movies. But unfortunately, 50% of them are trying to be the new Tarantino or the new Scorsese or whatever, instead of being their new themselves. So yes, um, how do you achieve that? You, I don't know. I don't know. I mean... I guess it's a very personal thing to cement your own identity. I don't know if the government, as an as an as an entity, can help us uh, just be more proud of of who we are as Canadians. Great, thank you know. so
1: much, guys. This has been uh, this has been absolutely fabulous. Thank you for your candidness and uh, <laughs> putting up with some of my cheeky questions.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, it was so, great, uh, really great. Thanks, Becky. Thank you very
2: much. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter, at RCMPod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.